One, two. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to VUX World. Today we have a epically exciting show for you lined up. We've got the whole team of Mycroft, more or less, uh, joining us today, talking about the open source voice development platform uh, and all of the hardware, the smart speakers that they have as well. It's going to be a huge, interesting episode. Um, we also have a new feature on the show, which is called Dev Chops with Dustin. If any of you are involved in the voice scene, you'll have come across Dustin. Dustin is going to be covering some of the technical uh, aspects and development aspects of the Mycroft uh, platform. And it's going to be epically interesting. It's going to be immense, absolutely. So we have, joining us today, we have Joshua Montgomery, the CEO of Mycroft. We have Steve Penrod, the CTO of Mycroft. And we also have Derek Schwepp, the CDO of Mycroft. What an epic title. And Dustin Coates as well. Ladies and gentlemen, this is VUX World. Okay, that's unfortunately, which is a bit of a downer so far. I went through a whole host of messing around before this call, before this, to get all of the audio beamed through to your side, chaps, and it hasn't worked. So it seems, it seems well, I'll, I'll work it out. It will be fine eventually. Uh, but hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll start off, we'll introduce Dustin. Dustin is going to co-host this episode, and we're also going to try a new feature on uh, VOX World, which is Dev Chops with Dustin. Uh, if you are even remotely involved in the scene you'd have come across Dustin's work and he is also uh, writing a book at the moment uh, about uh, voice applications for Alexa and Google Assistant. Uh, Dustin, hello. Hey everyone, looking forward to it. Wicked. And we also have Joshua Montgomery, the CEO of Mycroft. Hello Joshua. Hello, good morning. Good morning. And Steve, hello Steve, the CTO of Mycroft. Hello everyone. And last, but you can bet your bottom dollar, it is not least, we have Derek, the CDO. Derek, hello. Hello, UX World. Epic title, that. CDO, Chief Design Officer. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's that, great to have that opportunity. That is a wicked title. I've never come across that one before, but that is definitely one that, um, that is interesting. Mike, God. Mycroft. 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 We'll start off. We'll do a few intros beforehand. Uh, we'll we'll start with co-host Dustin, and then we'll move along to uh, Josh and Steve and Derek. Uh, just a, a few a few let's say thirty seconds to a minute. A little bit about your background, uh, just to put it into context for everybody listening. Uh, you know how you kind of got to where you are now. So we'll start with you, Dustin. Yeah, I am a software engineer by by training. And I've been working with voice for a few years now, started out like most people in the space as a hobbyist and really started to move on to tie my teaching background as well to start blogging about, about it and now writing a book called Voice Applications for Alexa and Google Assistant as well. So really looking to hear more about Mycroft today and see, see what all you guys have to offer. Cool. Joshua? Hello, I'm Joshua Montgomery, the CEO of Mycroft. Uh, my last company was a gigabit uh, fiber broadband system, and we wanted to build Jarvis from Iron Man into our facility. Uh, and next thing you know, we're running an artificial intelligence startup, building uh, an artificial intelligence for everyone who doesn't want to send all their data to Google and Amazon. Uh, 
And my, my role at the company is to talk guys like Dustin into changing the title of their books to writing voice <laughs> applications for Alexa, Google, and Mycroft. <laughs> Fantastic. Steve? Hey, good morning. Um, so I'm one of those graybeard developers now, as I'm becoming. I've uh, been in the, in the programming world since the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, got involved with voice interaction actually earlier than a lot of people uh, in the very late 90s with uh, the tablet PC and the early speech API uh, while I was working at Autodesk and doing development on mobile platforms. And, and uh, so I was playing with voice then, although it just wasn't ready for prime time. And uh, have moved in the last few years, revisited the area around 2014, and discovered that it it is a ready for prime time uh, technology now, and, and excited to be able to bring it to the world and see what we can do. You know, find out the new paradigms and the new capabilities that we can add to to computing with voice. Cool. And Derek. All right, so yeah, my background is in industrial design, and I worked on uh, all kinds of stuff from aircraft interiors to consumer electronics and housewares. Um, but I'd always say that my principles were in user-centered design. <clears throat> so, uh, recently been transitioning uh, to UX uh, as a whole for Mycroft, um, but I always I get to keep dabbling with industrial design as well. <laughs> too. But um, so yeah, so this uh, VUX, VUI business is uh, relatively new to me, but I've uh, jumped in and, and kind of absorbed as much as possible. Cool. That'd be interesting to get into um, what you've kind of learned and what your kind of first impressions and all that sort of stuff have been. Just, you know, what what's some of the things that just getting into that and we'll, we'll kind of, I know we're diverse, diversing already, but what are some of the things that, that are straight away that if it's new to you, what are some of the things that have either surprised you or kind of, um, you know, been a bit of a surprise? Um, yeah, actually, what I, I think one of the most surprising things is how long really the, the field of voice user interface design has been around in things like um, IVR and, and what Steve was mentioning earlier, some of the earlier stuff, and how much those principles um, still do apply, but also how different they have um, evolved with natural language and uh, capable systems. But a lot of the principles are, are pretty applicable. So um, yeah, seeing the resources out there, and there are so many growing resources in terms of uh, you know, books and, and guides and things like that for VUX and VUI designers that it's, yeah, it's really great to, to jump in and learn nowadays. Cool. So for the, a lot of people who've been listening to this uh, or the feedback that we've had so far are people who are within the sort of voice space and who are, you know, working on developing uh, voice apps and voice experiences for, for, you know, whether it's Alexa or Google Home or something like that. Um, some may have heard of Mycroft. I'm certainly hoping they have done. But also there's people who are uh, listening to this who aren't really aware of the voice scene in general, um, really, and they're kind of just starting to get into it. So for those people, uh, Joshua, we'll turn to you. For those people who haven't heard of Mycroft before, what is Mycroft? So Mycroft is an open alternative to Alexa and Google Home. The idea for us was to... Uh, build a platform that allowed and encouraged uh, developers and users uh, to build a voice user experience that is unique to them. Uh, really, the, the synthesis of the project was 
you know, we wanted to build a voice assistant in a space that we owned. We wanted to be able to walk in and tell it, play video on this screen or turn the lights on or, or whatever actions. And, and this is before Google Home and before Echo was a thing. And we went looking at the existing voice AI stacks, which at the time was basically Siri and then a, a very limited version of Google Assistant. And we found that there was no capability to customize those experiences at all. And so we set out to build something that would allow people to customize the experience, change the wake word, um, really define and build a, a user experience that uh, was for them. And by, by setting up an open source community, we began to build a piece of tech uh, that really was extensible, really was customizable, and really could run anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. Our stated goal as a company is much different from Google and Alexa and Amazon and Apple in that we are aiming to build an AI that runs anywhere and interacts exactly like a person. At the end of our project, we want the voice assistant we're building to be able to interact with you so naturally that you have difficulty telling whether you're speaking to a human or a machine. And so in addition to the traditional voice experience type um, uh, features. Uh, we're building in conversational features and personality features um, that allow the users to customize it and extend it to hold complete conversations with the user, which is very, very unique and very different from what uh, our friends at, at Amazon and Google are doing. Wow. So what, what kind of what were the timescales involved in Mycroft then? So when did, how did it all come around, you know, from, from where you first having the idea to, to get into where you are now? What kind of timescale are we looking at? And when, when did you first kind of have the idea for, for Mycroft? Uh, I had the idea in mid-2015. Uh, we wanted to, we were all working on Raspberry Pi and, and had a, a microphone and a speaker on our desk along with a wall wart, uh, a big, huge bundle of Medusa cables, like it was a big mess. And, you know, I, my office in Lawrence is also a makerspace. So in addition to office space, we have laser cutters, 3D printers, woodshop, metal shop, PCB fabrication. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that mess one day and, and decided, hey, you know, this is a disaster and went back in the back and synthesized a little basically oversized hockey puck enclosure for it and set it on my desk and then started scratching my head and said, I wonder if anybody wants to buy this. <laughs> um, so, if, you know, at the time we were mentoring a lot of other young entrepreneurs who kept coming to us and being like, I want to take this idea to Kickstarter. And we'd never done that, right? So we decided to take this hockey puck idea to Kickstarter as an exercise. Like, this is how you run a Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And we went and recruited Derek, who had had a very successful Kickstarter previously and uh, ended up running the largest Kickstarter to ever come out of the state of Kansas. And from there, we were contacted by Techstars, and Techstars led to Sean Fitzgerald. Sean was the first developer at Siri, second engineer assigned to Echo over at Amazon, um, started raising money, uh, took some money from Jaguar Land Rover, and began doing integrations with the F-Type sports car, uh, and then have continued down that path with you know investments from other big corporates like Sure Microphones, um, as well as a variety of proof-of-concept pro projects in actually a variety of industries, everything from... Uh, conference room systems to uh, consumer printers to uh, automotive. Um, there's a really broad interest in in voice, and that's really driving uh, driving our project and our company forward. Wow. So, um, Steve and Derek, what kind of what drew you both to Mycroft? Then, what was it about Mycroft that kind of uh, you know 
made it interesting for you and made you want to kind of get involved and we'll start with we'll start with you derek sure so yeah like josh said um we got in contact and it's actually interesting is through my grandfather who uh founded the computer science program at the university of kansas he is a was a um a customer of josh's and so he told me about this project and i was like oh yeah i'll go talk to them and uh, you know i've done a kickstarter before and so when I saw it, I was like, okay, this, this is going to be either nothing or really big, you know, because, because you know, talking about, okay, I knew about Echo, it was still in beta at the time, uh, you know, these things, it, it's on the cusp, this is what I want, I wanted to be involved in technology like this, you know, uh, and who doesn't want to build a talking robot, right? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> So at that point in the time, it was Kickstarter, it was industrial design, it was, um, you know, that that kind of conversation. And then it just, I just kind of basically hung around and said, hey, you need design for a lot of other things too. So um, it just kind of grew from there. Cool. And the design part is obviously a, a huge part. It's, 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 I've seen a tweet from, um, I think it was smartly.ai that was mentioned in that uh, 90% of time and effort they you know, should be spent on, on the design side and the, the development side um, is not the easy bit, but you know the harder part is actually getting the design right. And I've seen, Steve, I've seen the video of you on YouTube with the with the Jaguar, uh, and that looks pretty cool inside there. So what, what kind of, what drew you to Minecraft then? Well, um, like I said, I kind of got started in this whole voice excuse me, this whole voice world a long time ago. And then 2014 is when I started building out my own kind of voice agent. Uh, I had left a previous company and I was building that as a technology, see where I could go with it. And at that time, nobody else was publicly doing anything. So I kept waiting and waiting. I knew that it was too good an idea. It's just one of those things that felt like it was ready for a bunch of people to jump in. And, you know, finally Amazon came out with their device about a year into my development. And uh, so I was spending some time trying to figure out what to, how to partner, because at that point it was largely just me doing this. And I knew there was no way I would be able to take on a, a larger development team um, and, and grow it fast enough, because I knew this, once it took off, it's going to be a big uh, consumer world product. And it's not something that I wanted to take on the hardware manufacturing specifically. Um, so. I was talking to, I was actually talking to some people at Google about it, and they, the guy I was talking to said, do you know Josh Montgomery? Have you ever heard of these guys in Lawrence? And I said, no, because I was in Kansas City, which is 20 minutes away. It's like, you guys should meet each other. <laughs> so that was kind of where things kicked off for us and uh, decided to merge our efforts. You know, I think the open source approach is really um, the the best approach for what we're trying to build right here. This is this is a very base technology. These kinds of base technologies um, need to have a lot of eyes involved with them uh, and a lot of people bringing in their ideas and their concepts and being able to vet the technologies to make sure that what we're doing is the right thing. And, uh, and the privacy implications of this are so important, um, you know, so much different than uh, interacting with even your phone, which is a very private object, but mm. this always listening aspect of, of a voice assistant, it's borderline creepy. And you gotta, you gotta be aware of that and figure out how can we make it, 
acceptable to people, where they're willing to trust what you're doing is is in their best interest, not just the interest of, of whoever sold you the device. Mm. So, what kind of things? Um, what kind of things do Mycroft do then that might be different to the other um, brands out there, the big two we obviously know of, uh, to address those kind of privacy concerns that, that you just mentioned? Is there anything in particular that you're trying to focus on? Yeah, yeah. The uh, so the, there's a couple of things that that are an issue with the existing stacks that we resolve. So one of them is the limited functionality that you get with technologies from the other players. There's only so many things they'll let you do. Um, you know, they have to approve uh, the tech, any skills before they get deployed on the platform. They've limited what functions you can and cannot perform. Um, you know, uh, skill discovery is still a huge issue. Um, you know, you can't build a skill and become the default weather skill for Alexa, for example. Um, in our case, you know, you, the users have complete control of the stack all the way down to the operating system level. They can do things on the local network. They can get push requests. They can install skills that do basically anything that the computer can do. And so from a, a flexibility standpoint, it's, it's really, really different um, from the other stacks. Uh, the other thing that's very different is with ours, you can run it completely offline. And so, you know, the speech to text, the speech synthesis, all of the various different components of the stack can be deployed uh, for a larger company inside their corporate perimeter. And when we do our, our production release next year, we're aiming to provide those services on the local LAN. And what that means is that users don't have to send their data anywhere. They can keep it local and uh, not have to worry about mentioning handcuffs in the kitchen and ending up with a bunch of ads for BDSM gear the next time they get on the internet. <laughs> Wicked. That sounds good. So um, you mentioned that, was it, was, it a, was it a conscious effort then from the very beginning to make this whole thing open source and, and completely open? Was that like a real conscious decision or was it something that just manifested itself? Yeah, it was a conscious decision. We looked at, at what everybody was doing and and, you know, it, when you look at the history of computing, every time there's been a significant shift in the HMI, there's been an open player that has been a big winner. Um, you know, when we went from mainframe to x86, Red Hat became the winner. When we went from static to dynamic, WordPress became the winner. When we went from desktop to mobile, Android became the winner, even though it did get scooped up by one of the big corporates. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the relational database space, MySQL, despite Oracle's attempts to kill it multiple times over the last 10 years, is still 25% of the relational database market. And so when you look at this giant shift that the technology is making from uh, from basically a caveman interface, you know, you with a GUI, you effectively, you point at something and you grunt. I mean, that is, <laughs> that is effectively what the GUI is. Um, <laughs> to a new interface where you can actually hold a conversation with the computer, uh, we feel that there's room for an open alternative and that that opportunity is actually much, much, much bigger than people probably think. And Joshua, when you speak with these companies uh, and you have this open source solution, what are their thoughts on that? Do they have concerns about it being open source and being available to their competitors as well? Uh, so the, the big corporate thinking on open source has changed dramatically over the last 20 years. You know, 20 years ago in the late 90s, if you'd have gone to a corporate IT manager and said, you know, use this open source product, you would have got a lot of pushback. Well, we can't get support. Well, you know, how do we know it's secure? 
And fast forward 20 years and open source software underpins a majority of the technologies we use every day. I mean, almost every server globally is running some form of open source software, uh, either at the, at the base level, managing the virtual machines, uh, on the virtual machines, running open source services. It's, you know, open software has become a critical part of global infrastructure. And so, uh, unlike 20 years ago, where it might have been a disadvantage, today it's an advantage. Companies love the idea of it's open source, we have complete access to it, we can do security audits. There's an active dynamic community that's doing updates to the software, and we benefit from the R&D efforts that other potential competitors might be making in the space. Um, where we actually find pushback is on technologies like Alexa and Google, where you know companies look at the Amazon Alexa stack and they say, Amazon was selling books 20 years ago. Now they sell space launch services, <laughs> right? Um, you know, my thesis, you know, Jeff Bezos's thesis is the everything store. He wants you to buy, be able to buy everything, anything on Amazon. His mission statement is to build the world's most consumer-centric company where you can find and purchase anything online. If you're in business, you're probably going to compete with Amazon someday, whether you're a guy who mounts TVs in an office or somebody who's selling, uh, uh, somebody who's selling retail goods. And so companies are very, very wary about sending their data to Amazon because they have a habit of providing services for an industry that they're targeting, uh, learning about how that industry works by mining the data flowing through their systems, and then launching competing services at subsidized prices and putting them out of business. Um, Diapers.com is a great example. Uh, the company Nucleus, which was a voice company, uh, Amazon actually made an investment in Nucleus, which developed a, a video-enabled Alexa device, and then eight months later launched a competing product and effectively put them out of business. And this is a company they invested in, right? <laughs> and so we get a we get a ton of pushback from uh, uh, corporates who are desperately looking to deploy a voice strategy and don't want to use. Amazon and Google, which is why if you're writing a book about how to build voice interfaces, you should include a chapter <laughs> on how to make how to make Minecraft work. <laughs> so you so you won't be entertaining any uh, investment or um, buyouts from Amazon then. No, I, when you read the history of Amazon, I mean between the way that they've treated the publishing industry, the way they treat their employees, the way that they treat uh, the vendors that are selling things on their website. Uh, in my mind, you would be absolutely insane to engage with Amazon at any level ever. Like, I mean, really, if you're a supplier, uh, I've heard Amazon described as a charity run for the benefit of their customers at the expense of their suppliers and investors. And it's it's very, very true. And, you know, as an Amazon customer, like buying a product from them, I'm totally fine with that. Like rob the other guy and pass the savings on to me, but I'm never going to be a supplier or an employee of Amazon. That's well, very well put. That that's a few very interesting observations. I'd never actually thought about that angle of it because obviously they're trying to push the Amazon for business side of things as well. And I've never actually thought about the whole, you know, the the more sort of sinister side of it. That's that's yeah, some really interesting uh, observations there. The um, so if you if we step back slightly, you mentioned that um, you know, one of the things about being open source is that it's entirely open, obviously, and all of those open source platforms that you kind of mentioned all have a very vibrant 
kind of community, don't there? A lot of people that contribute to it. You mentioned WordPress. I mean, WordPress, if you ever have a problem uh, with a WordPress website, there's always somebody out there who's fixed it and you can go and speak to them and figure out how they've done it kind of thing. So um, you mentioned when we, we uh, very briefly spoke uh, on the phone um, a few weeks back, that you've got a very vibrant community. I'm wondering whether we can just kind of touch on the community and, and chat a little bit about, you know, what kind of stuff's going on there, what kind of things people are building in there and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, sure. I'll, I'll let uh, Steve unmute his microphone and, and kind of address the community aspects. Uh, mm-hmm. He spends a lot more time working with them um, than I do. Steve? Yeah. Um, so we've got uh, actively working in the core, we've had over um, about, I have to look at the exact stats, but I think around 70 or 80 different people, uh, contributors that are active on the core itself. And that includes everything from developing, you know, the core logic to people who are doing translations on this into, even though we don't officially support other languages quite yet. Uh, we've already got translations going on in Italian and Portuguese and French and Dutch and German. And I think somebody started Hindi. Um, and so we've got that at the very core level. And then built into Mycroft is the concept of skills where you can independently of the core develop a skill that then runs on top of that. And that is the trickiest part for us to measure because we don't necessarily even know who's doing skill development. You know, we'll have people who pop up who are like, yeah, the last three months I've been doing this. And, you know, anyone interested in seeing it? And they've been spending, you know, obviously tons of time <laughs> creating. <laughs> so, you know, the probably the best uh, gauge we have on that is just the, the people who jump into our, our chat community, the chat.mycroftai. Um, I think... We rebooted, we moved over from Slack to Mattermost uh, last fall. And so we reset the numbers to zero when we did that. And I think we're over 800 people that are in that community right now uh, that jumped into chats in, in the last six months. So pretty fresh numbers there. Mm. So depending, you know, like I said, it's tough for us to measure completely the, the interaction, but there, there are a lot of people that are paying attention to what we're doing. And, uh, you know, we can see when we put a, a comment out on our chat, our, our website will, uh, traffic will spike. So we know that there's a lot more listening than talking. <laughs> and Derek, um, the, the, you mentioned that there, Steve, that there's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff. From a, from a design perspective, Derek, what kind of things are exciting you about some of the stuff that other people are doing from, from what you've seen? Uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think Josh was talking earlier about how we're really trying to open up a lot of the skills, even on like kind of default skills, the ones that Amazon and Google very kind of closely control. Uh, so we have a community member that made a uh, shopping uh, list skill recently that works really quite well. And um, that that may basically become in the short term uh, almost our default skill for that. And that's... Uh, <clears throat> You know, we've been talking about how how valuable that type of deep level contribution um, is going to be, and you know, there, there won't be like areas that we close off, like uh, you might see from some other voice assistants. And um, I will admit that we are a little bit lacking in our uh, design guidelines at this uh, time, but we're building. That's one of our big goals for 2018. We're starting to build out 
um, Kathy, our community uh, manager, and uh, <clears throat> she's put together a system uh, for recommendations for skills um, that we're starting to collect and, and get people to start brainstorming on ideas. And that's, that's really where I want to start getting the design community built up and plugged in and, and kind of connecting the developers and the designers to go off and, and kind of work on stuff together and come back to us and say, hey, look at what we did. And we're, yeah. we're also starting to build tools that facilitate contributions from people who not, might not be developers. And so, you know, one of the things that inherently limits the size of an open source community, especially one who's working on complex problems like speech recognition, natural language understanding, intent parsing, speech synthesis, is that, you know, a lot of people don't have the requisite skills to program in Python or C or Java or any of the other technologies that we use. So we've been developing tools that are more similar to Wikimedia editor, things that allow our community to contribute even though they might not be software developers. Um, the first one that we've deployed is called Precise. And what Precise does is for users who've explicitly opted in, and in our case, if, you're, if we're gonna collect data on a user, they have to actually tell us, you know, we want you to, I want you to collect the data and have it to improve the technology, otherwise we keep nothing. So for users that contribute their utterances, um, we're picking up the two seconds that surround the wake word. So when somebody says, hey, Mycroft, um, we collect, there's the device on my desk went off, um, <laughs> we collect the, the two seconds uh, uh, previous to that and we feed it to precise. And then our community comes in and basically says, was this, hey, Mycroft, or was this somebody who said, I like Minecraft or go Microsoft, right? And uh, they tag them one or the other and we feed that into the machine learning engine and uh, it improves the technology over time. We've gone from like, the, I think the original version was like 80% accurate to 97 or 98% accurate in its most recent iteration. Uh, and we're opening that tool to other wake words shortly. So you'll be able to train for Hey Victoria or Hey Pedro or any other wake word that you wanna use. Um, we're also building a second engine called Persona that takes queries that Mycroft misses and makes them available to the community to answer. So if you ask Mycroft, what's your favorite color? Uh, that gets fed to Persona, and based on community input, we might select the favorite color is blue. And as we build a giant library of all of these questions, some of them will be subjective, like what's your favorite color? And some of them will be objective. We're working with the Wikimedia Foundation to make objective data available. So if a user would ask, how tall is Abraham Lincoln? it might punt the first time, not have an answer, right? Um, we do access Wolfram and Wikipedia and others. I think it can't answer that particular question, but as an example, um, you know, the that would get fed into Persona. A community member would look at that and say, oh, Wikidata Wicca, has the, all the heights of past US presidents in this table, and they do. Um, and they would link the answer to that query to that table. And that allows the AI not only to answer how tall is Abraham Lincoln, 6'4", uh, but also how tall is George Washington and John Adams and so on and so forth. And, you know, the original persona we're building represents Mycroft the company or Mycroft the technology. And so it's very bland and objective. You know, the goal is to make sure that it represents the most neutral viewpoint possible in the same way that, that our friends at Google and Amazon are creating AIs that represent the most neutral viewpoint possible. But in the future, we're going to provide the ability to fork that entire data set. And so if an individual or a community wants to create a Mycroft unit that's favorite color is green, 
um, they can collaborate to do that and to have opinions on politics and have opinions on uh, sports teams and and other topics that you know the default agent can't have. And so between the ability to contribute by tagging precise queries and the ability to contribute by answering persona questions, we really significantly increase the size of the community that's able to contribute to the stack because effectively, all you need to do is speak the language in order to contribute to the project. And so we're looking at increasing our contributor numbers from the low thousands, probably by a couple of order of magnitudes over the next couple of years. Wow. That's a... Uh... Pretty, pretty impressive that like isn't it that's probably a good way to solve a problem actually rather than rather than employing a load of people to come and try and figure out all these queries and, and do all the work to respond to them if you've got people who are passionate about it which a hell of a lot of people are or the, the voice community in general from from what I've seen and experienced over the last kind of few months it's everyone is super passionate and if you can kind of collar a few people who are really you know passionate about it and stuff like that then it's yeah I think that's a sounds like a really good idea yeah, yeah. I mean, you looked a few years ago and you thought about, uh, hey, let's write an encyclopedia. Let's give people who will help us write an encyclopedia. You, like, that's insane. There's no way that's ever going to work. And it kind of did. That's true. That's true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Classic. So you meant we touched a bit on, on the hardware there. Um, so the Mark One, the Mark One's available right now. That's right, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. You can go and buy a, a Mark One on our website today. And the Mark II is, is it, there's a Kickstarter for that ongoing, the Mark II, is that right? Yeah, the Kickstarter for the Mark II wraps up on February 24th at 8 a.m. And then we'll transition to Indiegogo for uh, a couple of months. And so, um, yeah, folks who are interested in buying a, a Mark II, it will never be less expensive than it is right now on Kickstarter. Um, if they're interested, they should reach in and, and make sure that they reserve one. Cool. And what's what's the... Um, what are your plans for the Mark II in comparison to the Mark One? So, what what is kind of different or new, or or what is the the reason, I suppose, for doing the Mark II? Uh, I'll pass that off to Derek, who's really doing the industrial design in the Mark II. It's going to be a fantastic product. All right, all right. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, Mark One. To be honest, uh, when we came in, you know, Josh kind of told you the backstory, but Mark One. It was really designed for Josh or people like that. <laughs> yeah, like, all right, there's a lot of Joshes out there uh, that are interested in that Mark One device. It's very hackable. Uh, it's based on the Pi. It's got all those exposed IOs and stuff. Um, but Mark II is much more of a play to the, a mainstream device, um, but without abandoning completely the ability to do a lot of things uh, for the developers and the makers and hackers as well. Um, so one to make it more of a mainstream appealing device. Uh, we kind of um, changed the industrial design to be a little bit um, better suited for maybe instead of your workbench uh, where you're hacking on stuff and you're soldering iron to uh, you know your kitchen counter, and to <laughs> and then also to add the screen instead of this kind of lo-fi screen that we had before with the dot matrix and the LEDs, which are, are fun and cool. But now we've got a full high fidelity screen, so we can do that that kind of multimodal stuff that is becoming real popular with voice assistants. Um, so you can see, you know, weather forecasts for a few days, uh, which is better to see on a screen uh, while you're also getting the verbal feedback. Um, but we're, we're always voice first. So everything that you can do with Mark II, uh, you can do via voice only, but you'll have that screen there for additional context and extra info. Um, and then our 
Our other big thing is the, the sound quality. Uh, we're really focusing on improving the sound quality. Um, it's going to have better, it'll have two um, speakers in there. It'll have stereo sound will be optimized a lot better than Mark 1 was. And um, of course, our microphones are going to be um, <coughs> uh, exceptional this time. So we're working with Aware, uh, which is a specialist in um, microphone array technology. And they're helping us make sure that it's going to be as good, if not better, than anything else out on the market. And uh, with that also comes this really interesting piece uh, that we might use in the future, which is this um, FPGA fabric that uh, we're, we're possibly going to be able to do a lot of tricky things in hardware that can be done in the future with that platform. Um, things like uh, right now we'll be doing like the, the echo cancellation and, and that type of stuff that makes that better. In the future, it could be all kinds of things. It could be machine learning. It could be, um, you know, even our wakeboard detection done in that hardware there. So all of those things are going to make Mark II a just a much better um, product in terms of longevity. It's going to have the ability. Of, I didn't even mention the camera. <laughs> uh, going to have the ability to, um, <clears throat> you know last a long time for the customer and be able to, uh, you know, future, be future-proof to a certain degree, so. Thank you. And Derek, uh, in the Mark I especially, but also in the Mark II, there's a real personality that you don't see in other voice-first devices. Can you talk a little bit about your decision-making there? Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, Josh, Josh always wanted it to have kind of an anthropomorphic quality and so the challenge there, and I love that too. I mean, that was one of the things that sold me at the beginning of it was because I know an echo is just essentially a cylinder and everybody's kind of gone that approach. And I think the challenge was, okay, can we have a device that has personality? Um, it can have a face. And then with Mark II, we consciously decided, all right, but if you don't want that, what, what can it be? And so the design for Mark II, um, we, we're, we've got the flexibility, you know, it could be that little talking robot that has that kind of cuteness, but if that's not your thing, you can set it up to have like a clock face or to tell you, you know, weather forecast and things like that. So um, in both instances, it works. And that, that was uh, the challenge, I think, from the design side. Um, but yeah, we didn't want to abandon what Mark one, that, that cute robot kind of look and, uh, and I think that's something that maybe, I don't know, maybe they're afraid to tackle from some of those other companies is this idea that, you know, we probably all had growing up that this technology is going to be personified in some way, you know, maybe more so than just the voice, right? You know, is it, mm -hmm. even all the sci-fi stuff growing up, like, you know, uh, this robot um, that has a face and has character and emotion, you know, that kind of thing. And so, yeah, we really want to bring that to a voice assistant as well. And, and actually, if you think about it, there's really, there's us and then there's Jibo. And, you know, Jibo is like eight times more expensive. <laughs> it's, really, it's really cool product, but it's, you know, there's a big, there's a big divide there. Well, and I, I wouldn't count Jibo out. I would be very surprised if Jibo didn't ship a speaker very similar to the Mark II uh, at some point in the near future. You know, it's great that their technology moves. Uh, and I've seen their unboxing videos and some of the use cases for that technology, and it's fantastic that team in, in Boston is just killing it. Uh, but, you know, our advantage in this, in, in what we bring to the table for our customers and our users is the ability to customize all of that and uh, eventually to customize it in communities. And so 
you know, me and five other people might team up to build a Mycroft persona that is uh, into goth music and uh, depressing. Uh, and, and all answers are super depressing, like sad, sad Eeyore Mycroft, right? Um, and, totally on that effort. Yeah, and that that personality may become super popular with a certain sub sub with a certain section of users that are you know fourteen to sixteen and live in suburbia, right? Um, but you know, people can make new personalities uh, that really reflect them, and then change those personalities over time. Uh, you know, the use case for this technology isn't just you know sitting on your counter and listening to music. Um, the use case for this technology is a voice assistant that lives in your automobile. Um, the use case for this technology is every call center job globally, right? The use case for this technology is point of sale systems. The use case for this technology is, um, you know, reception desks at companies, um, uh, navigation kiosks at trade shows. I mean, there's just so many places that this technology can be used and so many different personalities it can have that, you know, the type of approach we're taking really gives the community the flexibility to use the technology however they want, which is, you know, what we wanted to do in the first place. We just wanted to build Jarvis from Iron Man, man. If we'd have been able to download it and run it, we'd have been done. I'd been like, okay, like, I can move on, right? So. <laughs> that's, that's really good because one, one of the things that I quite like about the the both Mark One and Mark Two is we've kind of touched on it briefly is the the kind of the look of it and design of it like the Echoes and the Google Homes and even now the Apple HomePod they've all kind of gone for a very similar kind of look haven't they something that would just blend in on your shelf whereas the uh, the Mycroft uh, smart speaker the, the Mark One and the Mark Two looks a lot kind of cooler and funkier doesn't it? That's totally Derek. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the thing is like, why be afraid to, to, to do that and to approach it in that way. And with the customizability of, of the faces, like we talked about earlier, yeah, we can, you know, you want a really like emotional, more realistic looking face. Maybe there's a region that, that, that you know, is interested in that. We can do it. And then if that doesn't sell well somewhere else, then change it. So you know, that... That kind of approach is, is basically us in a nutshell, like Josh has been talking about, uh, being able to serve a lot of different communities, whereas we really don't think the other um, the other players are really that interested in that, at least not that like right now. So, well, and the other players have have taken a very safe approach. You know, I I'm I'm been reading about the launch of the iMac, um, and. You know, when the iMac launched with the clear outer case and, you know, the handle in the top of it and this new and funky shape that was just very, very different from the computers of the day, you know, everybody looked at it and said, that is so radically different. Like, I don't know if it's going to sell. And of course, they sold 800,000 units in the first year. It became Apple's uh, best selling computer ever. And it's because the John Ives and the team at Apple really took some significant risk in the design aspects and made something that was unique. And in our case, you know, maybe it will become something that's iconic. You know, uh, go and scoop up that Mark One. Maybe it'll be worth what an Apple One is worth someday. So you mentioned um, that this potential for for this technology is obviously huge i think you said every call center in the world essentially could be uh affected by this which is true i mean 
given all of those varying use cases and, and given that kind of vision, what are some of the kind of challenges that, that either you're experiencing now or that you can envisage experiencing uh, in the future to get to that point where the technology can handle all of those different use cases and be applied in all of those different um, environments? Uh, sure. So th- there are a couple of uh, uh, business challenges to that. Um, one is is because we're building such a broad platform that can run everywhere, uh, finding an industry to focus on is very difficult because we have incoming from consumer product companies. We have incoming from automotive companies. We have incoming from trade shows. We have, I mean, there's just this really wide variety of industries and building a product that services all of them while simultaneously keeping revenue up can be a very significant challenge for a small team. Um, in terms of technical challenges, I'll pass that over to Steve, who's been solving a lot of them on his own, but I'm sure has a long list of things that still need to be done. Yeah, well, it's kind of the, the, the flip side of what Josh just described. On the technical side, there's all sorts of interest in different niche uh, technologies like uh, user identification uh, based off of voice or wanting to use this stack to, do, to build a chatbot framework. Um, which is completely voiceless, but also allows you to tack, to tack in the voice interaction. Um, there's just, you know, every day we've got different people coming out with different ideas and different things that they're wanting to incorporate into it. And they're all great ideas. Um, how do you, the, the biggest challenge is how do you incorporate all of these different things into um, the same platform without, you know, changing the design in such a way that you're you're cutting out other possibilities um, and that the rest of the world needs not just this one niche that thinks it would be great if it could do this one particular thing just right. And so that, that's always tricky and you know, building out those interfaces in a way where you can evolve them later um, into things that you didn't even think about at the time you created the interface. That's what I'm trying to, to focus on is allowing us to have flexibility to develop in new ways uh, as we move forward. I'd love to hear a little bit about what Dustin thinks of the limitations that his community is running into in Google and Amazon and, and how maybe either they can address them or how, how we can address them going forward. Um, I know that there've been some challenges and I'd love to hear how we can, you know, if we can provide services for those folks, how we can do it. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think you've addressed a lot of it already, right? Uh, in the uh, Amazon Alexa community Slack, once a week, maybe once every two days, someone comes in and says, how do I do this? How do I set alarms in my skill? How do I make calls in my skill? How do I do X in my skill? And the answer is always, Amazon doesn't allow you to do that. Uh, so there's certainly that that you're addressing already. But another really big thing that everyone everyone is clamoring for is monetization, right? If we're going to put in the effort to build skills, if we're going to put in the effort to, to build something that's useful for these devices, people need to see an ROI at some point. The hobbyist can only take it so far. And so what, what are you guys addressing, doing to address that? Sure. So from the monetization perspective, anybody who builds skills is welcome to monetize however they choose. And so if you want to build a specialty skill that plays a game, uh, you're completely free to 
have the users create an account with you, and when they install the skill, they would simply enter their either authenticated through OAuth, which uh, Uke has working as of a couple weeks ago, um, or store their username and password at home.mycroft.ai and uh, access your skill that way. And so you would be able to charge people directly for whatever service that you're providing. Um, eventually, we're giving very serious thought, and this is not an announcement, this is not for certain, this is just something we're giving some thought to, um, about underpinning uh, Mycroft with a cryptocurrency, um, which would allow users to buy a token um, and then gradually grind that token down over time as they used pay, paid APIs. So for example, we have a relationship with Wolfram Alpha, where every time we run a query against Wolfram, we pay a fraction of a penny. Um, Right now, we subsidize that by doing business with big corporate entities, but a subsidized business model probably isn't the best business model for long-term health. We've been given some thought to having users buy a token, um, a free token would come with your, your Mark II when you bought it, um, that over time would gradually shrink as you use paid APIs. Um, and then using a chunk of that FPGA fabric as a miner so that if you're running an official Mycroft device, it keeps generating tokens and you never have to pay anything. But if you're running it on your desktop or on a Raspberry Pi or on something that you didn't buy from us, you would either have to set up your own mining rig or simply buy a, a token um, in order to pay those APIs. And building an, an ecosystem like that um, may very well create huge opportunities for people who are building skills that are very popular because, of course, the more people use your skill, um, the more uh, uh, revenue you generate, and we'd provide it a, a good way to do that. Uh, in the meantime, if you build a really uh, awesome skill, you can, you're more than welcome to require users to create an account with you and authenticate it and uh, charge them per API query. Well, we we seem to be kind of delving into the more kind of technical specifics. What I'll do is do the dev chops with Dustin, uh, and we'll kind of carry on the the, the train of thought down to um, down the kind of technical route. So I'll, I'll hand over to you, uh, Dustin. Dev chops with Dustin. Let's do this. Great. So uh, we'll jump into actually more of an architectural dis uh, discussion on a decision you made. You know, JavaScript is becoming very popular, especially in the voice-first community to build these skills. Uh, but for skills for Minecraft, it's in Python. Can you talk a little bit about the decision or how you made that decision? Well, I think there's there's a more even fundamental difference in the way Minecraft is built out um, than just that language, and that that sort of informed why Python became the underpinning language of this system. So when you look at the base design of the Google equipment or the Amazon equipment, basically that thing sitting there in your house is a microphone and a speaker and that's it. And all it does is it connects you back to a cloud entity that is doing all of your actual processing. And everything happens on that cloud, all the computation, all the API interaction occurs at the cloud level, and then it sends something back down to play out your speaker. That's basically the way it's designed. And the Mycroft system really does everything possible locally, as local as possible. So from the beginning, you know, there is the 
isolated interaction that occurs there. And then at the current moment, we do reach off device typically to be able to do the speech to text transcription. Um, but once that is completed off of a cloud service and in the future, that doesn't necessarily have to be even someone else's cloud. It could be your cloud or on the right hardware. It could be on the local hardware. Once that transcription comes back, the rest of it occurs on the local hardware, uh, the natural language processing, the intent matching, and then the actual execution of the skill. And because you're running on the local hardware, that exposes a ton of capability. You're able to interact with the physical hardware. Uh, you know, if you have GPIO type equipment that you're wanting to send electrical signals out to motors, or you're wanting to interact with other uh, equipment within the local area, within your house's uh, uh, land, to be able to control lighting systems, or to be able to control a, a blender, or to be able to receive, you know, in, MQTT notifications coming off of IoT devices, that all can happen running on this local equipment and, and interact that way. And because of that, uh, Python had a ton of has a has a ton of libraries that are existent already to do you know basically everything. Um, so that was a vibrant community that we really want to be able to take advantage of things that weren't in any way voice related. Um, we wanted those capabilities to be available to the users, and uh, you know, Java uh, or JavaScript, excuse me, is really a, a web technology originally, and that, that's what its heart is, is about. And interacting with IoT devices is awkward. Um, you have to do it through gateways and things like that, or interacting with an IO port off of a GPIO from a Raspberry Pi. It's just not built into it like you can with Python. Right. And what are some of the either challenges or even happy surprises that people discover when developing Mycroft skills, either people new to voice first or people coming from these other platforms? I think um, the thing that a lot of developers get most excited about is just the power that's available to them once they, you know, if they have been working in the Lambda environment and, and you know, they're, they're, they're so boxed in in certain ways and they're like, wow, you mean I can actually do anything I want with this? And, and they can, you know, it, it's really um, almost scarily powerful what you're able to pull off uh, inside of a micro skill. Um, so those are, those are some of the cool things about it. And I think the other bits that, um, you know, for me as, as a developer is the, the things that come out of left field that are made available to you suddenly. Um, so like, a couple of guys have come in uh, recently with, uh, they've been working on developing Node-RED, which is a visual programming language. Um, so there's a Node-RED capability now where you can do your, your skill development in that style um, outside of doing raw Python coding. And uh, those capabilities that being in an open community versus waiting for, you know, this, this other entity to feed you what the latest features are. Um, you get these things that just crop up, and that's one of the cool things about Minecraft and the way we can develop. Okay, and moving further down the stack a bit, away from the skills, you have two different intent parsers. Can you talk a little bit about what purposes each of those serve and the, the future between those two? 
Sure, sure. So the, the two intent parsers is ADAPT, which was the original one that we began with, uh, which is more of a, a keyword-based entity. Uh, and then the second one that came about is called Bedacious, which is more a, an example-based mechanism. And they both have their, their own use cases in the times where it's easier to make use of one or the, or the other. And, you know, to be honest, we're still sorting out exactly how we put the two together and how they play with each other because they are significantly different. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the, the ADAPT system is, uh, is uh, useful for areas where you have a very specific, um, a very specific set of, of, of phrases that you're wanting to control. Pedacious can be a little more valuable where you're working with a, lot, a much more vague type of, of uh, voice interaction. And then combining that with some of the other uh, mechanisms that we've built in, we have a, a thing called Converse, uh, which allows you to look at raw utterances before it even hits the intent parsing. So you're able to take the sort of the context of what's been going on recently, the recently involved skills get a crack at the utterances that are coming through the system before we even hit the attempt parsing. So you can do completely free form things based off of uh, the, the stuff uh, that's, that, that the user has spoken, or you can allow it to, to fall through and then it will be picked up by the base uh, uh, intent parsing system. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different capabilities and a lot of different ways that we're exposing to allow us to have this conversational agent, less of just a single command shot, more of a, a interactive interaction. Uh, that's really amazing. And I think it speaks a lot to what you said earlier about just the raw power you have when developing skills for Mycroft. If you look at some of the other platforms, it is a, a little bit boxed in and perhaps there's some benefits to it, but if you really want to build something that gets into that raw information, uh, you're going to be fighting with it a little bit where it sounds like you're, you're putting that all out there for the developers to use. That's what we're trying to do. Dev Chops with Dustin. Okay, thank you. That was uh, Dev Chops with Dustin. And uh, so... Um, Let's go to to Derek for a sec. So obviously you've kind of been a, a, involved heavily in some of the um, all of the, the kind of design. I'm, I'm just wondering whether you've had um, or what kind of your experience has been in, in terms of the designing for the actual voice experiences themselves, as opposed to designing the kind of hardware. Have you had much experience in designing the the whole voice experiences? Uh, and if so, what are sort of some of the um, you know the um, principles and practices that you've kind of developed in that respect? Yeah, so one, as a design uh, leader here, I think the biggest thing is to just be the advocate for the user, right? And so whether it's the industrial design or the VUX design or visual design uh, for different things, um, that is, that's the, the main uh, role that you know we play here. And there's me and, and uh, one other designer on on staff, David, and so we kind of ha we have to, to balance all of those things. So maybe for a couple of weeks, I'll be off doing industrial design, or we'll be doing some other aspect, or we were heavily involved in the video production with the Kickstarter. So we're kind of always juggling these things. Um, 
but I'd say, uh, you know, about nine months ago, a year ago, we really started to formalize a process for internal um, UX for designing the, the voice experience. And it's, you know, like I mentioned earlier, 2018 will be a big year for us uh, to get the, a really documented process out there to share, but I can kind of run you through how we're doing it now. And, um, you yeah. know. Yeah, that'd be cool, know, yeah, if you, if you could, yeah. Sure. So, it's a, I mean, it starts with user research, and we did a lot of that when we started with Mark II, um, just interviewing people in our community and interviewing uh, voice assistant users in general, the, you know, competitors as well. Uh, we do surveys as well, and um, getting that information to see, okay, what's missing out there in terms of skills or how, how we're doing things correctly and how can we improve upon that. And, um, and then, you know, uh, from there, we kind of developed these user personas of, of who uh, our users are. And I kind of mentioned earlier that there were a lot, at the beginning, there's a lot of Josh's, right? <laughs> so, uh, but as we move forward, it's going to be basically everybody, right? So that, um, that persona, what we have now with Mark 1 being, in a lot of cases, kind of this robotic, uh, partially because of our um, text-to-speech engine, and also partially because of some of the way the skills were written, they might even sound kind of Yoda-like in some ways because of the way they're pulling the information from how the API works, et cetera. That's just a lot more forgiving when you're the developer and you know you're writing a skill and you're like you're so invested in in the ability to do what you want with it that you're okay. You're going to forgive some of the rough rough around the edges stuff. But as we move forward you know, that, that, that kind of forgiveness is, is going to go away. <laughs> um, so, you know, so, you know, the next step for us is to get to that level. Um, but, okay, so I kind of got a little off track there, but uh, so after user research, what we do is we kind of sit down and, and we use, we're starting to use a jobs to be done framework, if you're familiar with that. And the beauty with that is that you're really trying to just boil it down to what exactly are you trying to do? here and that, a lot of the cases those things don't change right so um, music is this great example of what voice assistants are really good at and it's kind of the selling feature for you know a lot of a lot of them and it's if you look back at the history of that technology you know the job to be done there i mean basically break it down into the situation motivation and outcome um you know might be you know i'm at home and i want to relax so i can unwind and you know that might be playing music and if you would go back to the record player, that would mean going and get that record off the shelf and then pulling out of sleep, putting it on the record player, dropping the needle. It's this whole ritual, right? And we're basically boiling down that same job to, hey, Mycroft, play music. It's, it's just so elegantly simple. Um, so starting with just trying to get the, the idea, okay, maybe you're writing a skill, getting it down to those jobs to be done and not thinking, you know, from the you know feature first like okay well you know if you're thinking like all right well i need to say stop if that's the first thing you're thinking then you know that's that's bad like you want to try and think from from the big high picture stuff and work your way down so jobs to be done first and then we start with dialogue sketches which are basically that's just like really mini scripts of how you would interact with with the, my with mycroft and out of that if you do those really thoroughly, you know, the jobs will be done, the, the scripts, you're going to get the intents. You're going to get the, in, the intents that then become basically the features of that skill. So that could be, like I was talking earlier, that an intent for stop for a media skill or intent for play or intent for specifying 
what song you want to play. And once you have all that, right now, we're actually starting, that's when we start to bring dev in. And, um, you know, there's other tools out there, like a lot of more complicated skills might need, like a flowchart or flow to um, kind of diagram out your multiple states and things like that. So you kind of keep track of that. Uh, and that's really a lot more helpful in conversational interfaces. So like when you start to have these long conversations and stuff, and we've dabbled around with that. Um, and there are like some really excellent tools out there that are starting to, to, to crop up for these specific uh, VUX, um, you know, problems. We're honestly doing most of it just in office tools right now. Um, but, uh, but it's really going to be interesting to see how those suites of tools build out to allow you to do those types of things, specifically for voice. Um, so that's going to be something we're really going to need to go back and look at. How do we get that into our workflow a little bit better? Um, mostly because right now we have some conversational aspects, but it's usually kind of like a disambiguation thing where, like, you know, you need to ask, oh, AM, you're setting a time uh, for an alarm and you, you forgot to say AM or PM, you know, and then you know, a little feed follow up on that. But in the future, I mean, we're going to have, hopefully, we're, you know, as Josh mentioned, we want to be able to be like, uh, a real conversation, which, to be honest, where voice assistants are right now isn't a real conversation because, you know, it's very much this, I have to say something, then I have to wait, and, you know, I can't interrupt Mycroft while I say anything because, you know, he doesn't really know what that is exactly right now, and um, whereas, you know, I could interrupt, you know, Steve in a conversation, and that's, you know, might be kind of rude, but <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very natural process of interacting with other people. Um, so there's, there, right now it's kind of very limited in a way, but as we get to that real conversational aspect, you know, getting the tools necessary to kind of mock that up. And part of the process is moving away from scripted dialogue and scripted trees and moving towards machine learning approach. So one of the things Persona does is ingest uh, big, huge blocks of conversation and feed it into a machine learning algorithm to uh, provide you with answers. And using that tool, you know, Steve has a really good example of, uh, I think it's related to music, Steve, that uh, uh, Michael, Michael developed where it was able to generalize uh, answers based on previous answers that people had given. Uh, and I don't remember exactly what it was. Could you run us through it? Yeah, it was, uh, and I'm going to see if I can remember exactly. It had a couple of different answers that the engine was fed uh, with regards to, um, you know, uh, do you do you like music? And the the explicit answer was, um, I like music. I, I enjoy the rhythmic aspects of it. And then there's another one. Do you like Beethoven? Um, and um, Yes, I like Beethoven. I enjoy his music. So then, when you ask the engine, you know, what do you like about Beethoven? It was able to connect the dots together between those two answers to say, I really enjoy the rhythmic aspects of Beethoven's music. And it was one of those cool things where it didn't explicitly in any of the answers tie Beethoven and rhythmic. But the fact that you've been talking about music and music like this, the engine figured out that if it likes Beethoven, then it must be because Beethoven has that sort of uh, that sort of quality to it, and that's the answer that it gave back. And so, by so, capturing 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of, of answers through persona and through interactions with users. The goal is to train the machine learning algorithm to respond to these questions uh, by basically interpolating or by using the neural network to uh, generalize, um, which is where you start getting towards the outer edges of what current AI technologies are capable of. You know, in many ways, when we talk about voice assistants today, we're effectively talking about voice command systems. And where we're looking to do really cutting edge stuff and move the ball forward on the technology side is creating uh, intelligence stacks that are able to generalize and answer questions based on large data sets the same way that you and I can answer questions based on large data sets. How, that's obviously a mammoth task. And there's a mixture in there of, it sounds as though there's obviously a huge mixture of design and development in that because you need to design for those scenarios in terms of all those different situations and, you know, I think, Derek, you called it their jobs to be done. I can imagine that, you know, if you're kind of building an AI that can cater for all of these different use cases, you kind of need to at least have a starting point of use cases kind of thing. So how how with the Microsoft platform, how does the sort of design side and the, the development side work together? So for example, if Derek, if you were kind of building a, um, a voice app or skill or experience that you identified um, a real use case for machine learning, uh, how, how would you kind of, how would, how do you marry the design and the, and the developer side together? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, that that's all still kind of uh, sorting itself out. Um, you know, we have some of the machine learning initiatives like Persona we were talking about earlier. I think maybe that's a good example of, of how we're going to kind of, you know, dovetail these, the dev and design together and use that tool moving forward. So, you know, initially from, from kind of like a traditional standpoint, I think this is awesome. We'll make Mycroft different than other, other voice assistants out there. You know, they would have, uh, for a person, personality, they would write, you know, thousands of responses. They'll bring in voice talent and they'll record all these prompts and all this stuff. We don't, we don't really have the resources of that to do that. But you know what we do have the resources to do is that we have the resources to do machine learning, AI, and these really smart people. So we're tackling it from, like, uh, a different angle, which we think was, is really how it's going to be done in the future, you know. And um, the problem with that is... You know, it's a lot easier for a designer to wrap your head around writing all these scripts that are, you know, responses that are going to pop up for a certain situation and kind of relinquish control to a to a machine learning thing that is kind of contributed by the community is like, whoa, hold on, what's going to come out of this thing, right? Yeah. Um, but really, that's that's the way we have to think about it here, and that's our value uh, as an open source and an AI kind of driven company is to look at creative solutions that, um, that you know, the, these other voice assistants were able to maybe tackle with kind of brute force or just throwing money at the problem. And um, so Persona for me, it's kind of turned into this thing, okay, well, it has this personality aspect that we already, I mean, we did write a lot of the personality for Mycroft that, that you know, that we were able to catch. It's the, it's the Persona could catch things that we didn't think of, right? Um, but it also is picking up intents that are just failing to match, you know. And then so we're like, okay, how do we get that, those tagged correctly so that we can go back and match them to the correct skills? Or if there's no skill there, how we can write a skill to capture that intent. Um, so that 
that kind of feedback mechanism, and I'm not sure how some of the other players are doing it, but that kind of feedback mechanism is just, it's going to be awesome for us to be able to, to continue to make a, the product better. Yeah, and, and one of the things I want to kick in is, again, the reason that we exist, honestly, as a, as a competitor to an uh, organization like Google or an organization like Amazon, which has you know, near infinite cash resources, is that we're doing this as a collaborative effort, you know, a community-based effort. So the things that he was just talking about, we're building our tools around the ideas of being able to work together. The persona tagging is something that anyone's going to be able to come in and look at a question that someone in the world asked a Mycroft unit and they had opt-in and all this accepted in there so where they were allowing this to be shared. And so this question was asked of, you know, that, that wasn't handled by the system. One individual then, and it may not be us, and it almost certainly won't be us, can propose an answer. And then two more individuals will have to come along and say, you know what, that's a pretty good answer. I like what they came up with and, and give an approval or reject that. And it goes back in the bin for uh, someone else to pick up and to come up with that answer that, that is appropriate for the question. And um, that's that kind of mechanism and the allowing people who have all sorts of different backgrounds to be able to tackle things is the only way that we're going to be able to uh, take this on as a company or as an organization or as, a, as an effort. And honestly, I think it's the best way to solve it, you know, globally anyway. I think a single entity is never going to be able to represent the entirety of the world if it's the only thing that's, you know, it has a viewpoint whatever that entity, that individual, that organization, that corporation has a viewpoint that they're going, they're biased toward. And we're building these technologies, you know, I think we're all uh, been pretty influenced by sci-fi, you know, the computer on Star Trek or, or you know, name the sci-fi movie for the last 30 years. There's some sort of voice interface that you've been interacted with. And it's always super easy and natural and, and that's what we want to build. And, uh, we're going to have to do that as a group, not as a as a single entity that produces that. Yeah. I, I mean, I I would argue that it didn't go always go well in sci-fi. Um, you know, the user experience with HAL was a bit of a challenge. Um, the pod the pod bay doors and everything, you know, <laughs> worked pretty good in Men in Black too, though. I don't know yeah, if you've seen. Yeah, well, you, you just see. He's. I watched that the other day. He's driving in his car and he says, "Computer, show me uh, men, the Men in Black headquarters," and it just comes up on the screen. And he's got like all the CCTV cameras and stuff like that. And I was just thinking, obviously thinking about this sort of uh, chat and all that lot. I was just sitting there thinking, "Oh, that could be, could be Mycroft." That. <laughs> From the design point, it's it's much more like okay, we we don't have really the resources internally to say okay. This is exactly how all this stuff's going to work. We're going to plan it all ahead of time. So um, mostly, it's it's trying to get the tools out there for everybody to be kind of thinking about it from that side and, and having the user advocacy in their mind, both internally and in our community, um, so that we don't become a bottleneck. That like these really, um, you know, these really creative solutions like we're, we've been talking about um, are going to pop up from both internally at Microsoft and in the community. Cool. That sounds that sounds like a, you know the whole Mycroft um, 
the platform and the, the hardware and everything about it sounds really really exciting and you're you're obviously the we've touched on it kind of in the throughout the whole course of this show in terms of the other efforts from the other companies and and how seemingly kind of locked down it all is and i think what you what you're trying to do is is absolutely fantastic you know what i mean it's getting a whole community involved in it and having something that is entirely open and entirely flexible um with also the hardware to go with it that's a bit of a it's something that you kind of wouldn't expect really you, you would kind of think that you know the um it would either be the software or the hardware whereas you've kind of combined the two and you've got the whole kind of community thing going and it, it sounds sounds absolutely fantastic so, so thank you, uh, everybody, for joining us. Before we um, before we kind of head off and wrap up, do you, can you tell us a little bit more about what 2018 has in store for Mycroft? Yeah, sure. We're wrapping up our Kickstarter now. We'll be on Indiegogo for another 45 days. Um, we have brand new voices available. Um, actually, if you can you can sample them here, uh, if if you'd like, uh, you can head to our website and see some of the examples laying the new voices next to the voice from uh, Google and, and Amazon. Uh, those are deploying in April. Uh, we're moving to the deep speech, uh, speech transcription engine uh, in March. And we're doing a lot of work around user experience. Uh, the Mark II ships December 4th at 5 p.m. And so we're really excited to be working towards uh, that shipping date. And then we're gonna make a big push into international languages in the second half of this year, uh, focusing on uh, languages that the other players might not be interested in providing support for. So things like Hawaiian and Icelandic and Afrikaner, uh, languages that are very important to the people who speak them, but are currently not supported by voice assistants. And so that's going to be a big part of the year as well. Fantastic. And how can somebody get started if they were, they were a developer wanting to give Mycroft a, a go and, and have a stab at the platform? How would they get up and running? How would they get started? Where would, where would they go to get started? Head to mycroft.ai and hit uh, get Mycroft. You can pull down a Raspberry Pi image and be up and running in 15 minutes. Fantastic. And where can people get in touch with, we'll start with you, Joshua, if somebody wanted to hit you up online or, or find out more about yourself, where can people find you? Sure, people can always find me on the Mycroft forums at community.mycroft.ai uh, or reach out to me through the chat. I'm Joshua-Mycroft on our Mattermost chat channel. So, And I'm always happy to uh, speak to members of the community and engage with them and, and, and listen to their ideas and, and uh, really grow the, the group of people that is working to make this successful. Fantastic. What about you, Steve? Yeah, most of my uh, most of my life is spent on the, the chat .ai, the Mattermost forums. Uh, that's the best way to get hold of me. You can always send me emails, uh, steve.penrod at mycroft.ai, um, and I do occasionally go over to the community forums, um, but I'm usually swamped and only look at those when somebody points something out specifically. So the best way to track me down is probably on the chat. What about you, Derek? Yeah, I'm going to echo that chat. Yeah. Um, you can email me as well, derek.schweppy at mycroft.ai. Um, but yeah, chat's always great. Cool, fantastic. What about you, Dustin? Yeah, you can hit me up on Twitter at, at decodes or send me an email over at dustin at decodes.com. Fantastic. Nice one. There you go. That was Mycroft. That was an intense 
episode. That was a fantastic episode. I can't believe, uh, you know, how interesting that was. All the guys there are mega passionate about it. You can like, just you can tell just by you know the, the tone of voice and the way they're explaining things. They're obviously it's something that is not only a, a really uh, you know a really good business idea and a really good uh, platform. It's something that they're really madly passionate about as well, which is fantastic. Um, do check it out. I'll put all of the links and all of the uh, the things that we've been discussing all through the show. It's been a long one actually, and I think I couldn't. I've just been saying to them that at the end there that I could have just spoke about this uh, with them for absolutely weeks because it's just such an interesting uh, platform and, and company. Uh, so thanks for, to Mycroft for joining us. Thanks to Josh, Steve and Derek. And thanks for Justin as well for, for joining us and co-hosting and, and for doing dust, uh, dev chops with Dustin. Um, and thank you all for listening. And until next time, see you later.